0: listening to the Wonder Women of Aviation, a podcast that helps preserve the history of women in aviation and highlights women involved in aviation. Hello and welcome to the Wonder Women of Aviation, a podcast that highlights the history of aviation and women in aviation. Today I'm speaking with Graciela Tiscareño sato Did I say that right? Perfect. Perfect. Yeah. <laughs> Graciela is a former Air Force navigator. She's also an author, multicultural publisher, bilingual, um, K-12 STEM consultant, which I definitely want to learn more about, and also a keynote speaker. She's got a very, very huge resume. Um, So
1: Graciela, thank you. Thank you for being here on the Wonder Women of Aviation. Well, thank you for having this podcast and uplifting our stories, Natalia. Thank you. This is such
0: an honor to have you here. I'm going to talk a little bit more about obviously your service. Um, so thank you for your service. Yeah, You're welcome. I loved it. It was fun. <laughs> So how does a Latina <laughs> female get involved in, um, you know, aviation, the Air Force? Um, obviously, I'm sure there's some cultural barriers that may have been put in your way. How did you overcome those barriers? So let's just take it back um, to your aviation, I guess, bit I call it the bit by the bug story, right? So we all yeah. get the bugs. So when and how did you get bit by the bug?
1: Oh, this, this one's a little bit weird. This is a weird story. I know the pretty unusual stories that I'm sure you hear when you ask that question. But if I could share for one minute, I want to show you a photo to, to answer that question. Awesome. Oh. Go there to do a quick share here. All right. So I'm going to answer your question by showing you a photo of my familia. Picture of my family here.
0: Oh, I love
1: your family. Yes. So this is my family. When I was a teenager, I was, I want to say, 15 years old in this picture. And I show it this way with these words of the unlikely aviator. I was born in El Paso, Texas, the daughter of Mexican immigrants, Arturo Ventina Quiscareño. And I was the oldest of five kids. So when I hear that question, you've asked me, like, how did I get bit by the aviation bug? It didn't start in the house. It did not start in the family because we only road tripped in the car from Colorado down to El Paso, where our family wasn't even into Chihuahua one summer. So no airplanes were involved because you know who had the money to buy seven airline tickets? We did not. So you see the text there. I had uh, one, I've been on one airline flight at the age of 18 months. I was a baby wow. before I became an Air Force cadet and went to Berkeley. So the story kind of starts there. And what happened was, I, I would lay on the ground in Colorado where I grew up and I'd look at the sky and I would see the blue sky, the Rocky mountains, and I would see these airplanes and I'd see the contrails, right? Just Mm -hmm. airplanes going beyond the mountains. And I remember just laying there and like, I wonder where those people are going. Like, I wonder what it's like to be up there because I'd never been. So my story of curiosity about airplanes starts laying in the grass, looking at the sky and not getting any airplane rides. Um, But then in high school, I would go to my uh, counselor um, and I would say, Hey, I've heard it's possible for a kid like me to go to college. How does that happen? And she was so kind. She said to me, you know what, my husband's family was bigger than yours. He was from Appalachia and he had eight brothers and sisters. So come to my house for dinner and he will tell you what he did. And to tell you, that alignment of the stars and me asking that question of how can I go to college is how I met Major Burgess, Air Force Major Burgess, her husband. And he's the one that told me all about the Air Force ROTC scholarship. Mm-hmm. And he told me it'll pay for you to go to college. And then you just owe four years of service after that. He didn't mention flying because I was going to go be an engineer, an architect. That was my academic track. He wasn't an aviator either. But he told me that there was a scholarship that'll get my education paid for and I can serve after. So that's, you know, like mentors come and go and like these little pieces they give you was enough to get me going. And then I got into Berkeley and I got the scholarship with his help. The bug happened two years later. Now, again, I'm the academic, you know, architecture, civil engineering and aerospace studies, but nobody has mentioned the possibility of flying. Weird, huh? (laughs) Hey. <laughs> in the oh. air force RTC program. And I remember meeting guys who were like, Oh, I'm going to be a fighter pilot, you know, cause like they grew up at air shows. They grew up watching examples of dudes, flying fighters. And so I was like, Oh, that sounds cool you know, but I had no interest in that. I again, never been on an airplane or that I remember. Right. And so halfway through, um, the air force takes you through, uh, what they call summer field training. And part of that was something that's lacking in the lives of all teenagers. And that was, let's take you to different Air Force bases and meet different professionals. Yeah, Let's meet the meteorologists, the weather people in base ops who give you the briefings and look at weather maps and satellite and you know what they do. What's, what's meteorology? Meet them. Let's meet the civil engineers, which is what I did, because that was my academic track. And the civil engineer broke my little romantic engineering bubble. He said, <laughs> oh. She says, you think you're going to design buildings in the Air Force? I'm like, yeah, like that new hospital. She's no, 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 no. They contract that out to civilians. So, you know, really just pop my bubble. I'm like, oh, no, I'm already majoring in this. What am I going to do? The very next day, I was at a pilot training base with the Air Force because they were showing us different careers. So the bug came at Williams Air Force Base. On a T-37 flight with Captain Dolly DeLisa. I still remember her name. She was the instructor pilot and she took me for a ride. Everybody could sign up for orientation flights. And I was like, why not? Why not? Right. And so we went up in this little trainer and she taught me how to fly. She taught me to do rolls. We did all kinds of crazy stuff. And I thought it was just amazing, like a roller coaster. Yeah. But I just thought it was a joy ride. Like, cool. Cool that I got this ride. I was not thinking the entire time, wow, this is a thing I could do. Like I could actually go fly because I was on this other track. And so we land, and she says to me, yeah, You're the first person I brought up here today. Remember, it's Arizona in July who hasn't like barfed in the plane. Like you're the first one that hasn't thrown up. accomplished Right. I mean, cause it's really hot and it's over the desert. And so she said, these guys come up here and they think they're going to be fighter pilots and you take them upside down and do a couple of loops and some barrel rolls and they're not okay. But I was just like loving it. So she's like, tell the staff you want to fly, go back, tell the staff you want to fly. And I was like, well, I'm studying architecture and engineering and blah, blah, blah. She's like, that's your academic track. This is the air force. Tell them you want to go fly and that was it like it was just like you mean i could actually go do this what and okay. so she told me and you know just the way the process works is you put your name in a board process and then they choose pilots navigators wizos different uh, specialties and i got selected to go to undergraduate navigator training to be in a career plane so that's how it happened it was kind of random but kind of awesome because i didn't want to go fill potholes for generals, which is what the civil engineering lieutenant told me I'd be doing. So she rescued me from something that I would have hated. (laughs) And instead I got to go to, to undergraduate navigator training after graduation, and then pick my airplane. And I'll tell you about that later and um, go fly for almost a decade.
0: Wow. That's amazing. I'm glad that you had a mentor that kind of guided you on the right track. I think we all need that in life. It's, you know, whether it's early or later on in life, um, I'm finding some great mentors to guide you along the way and, and, you know, direct you on your path of where you need to be. So it sounds like you're doing amazingly with your path. Um, I want to learn more about what is a navigator, and <laughs> what mm-hmm. that entails, because for civilians, we don't, we don't know any of that. And, and that's what I want to talk about, like learn more about what women's roles and what women can do in general in the Air Force. So yeah. What, specifically
1: so I didn't know what it was again you know when I talk about this whole story Natalia I always say you know aviation found me like literally I wasn't looking for it I was on this other path but like the mentors and the advice and orientation flights you know they were put in my path the key is to say yeah the yeah I'll go try that I'll go take that orientation flight um wow That's, that's, that's pretty heavy. So I was, I found this out recently by communicating with the Air Force Personnel Center. I was the third Latina ever to go through um, undergraduate navigator training. So women were not even allowed to train as pilots and navigators in the Air Force until 1977. Mm -hmm. Even though women had flown every airplane in World War II, the women air service pilots, that whole part of history that is not known to people that they flew with bombers, they flew the fighters, they flew everything, those 1,100 women yeah. that we know as the WASPs. Um, but then 33 years went by after the war, where the military continued to deny women the opportunity to go formally be trained. Yeah. Okay. And I say it that way because it was very intentional, right? But 1977, finally, the pressure from all sides came and they opened up the doors so that um, pilot training and NAV training both opened up. So what is navigator training? Navigator training, (laughs) I'll quote my husband, professional backseat driver. Okay. (laughs) Okay? You are the professional backseat driver. In the KC-135, you're also the mathematician. Okay. Um, So you can be a navigator in a fighter, but then they call you a weapon systems officer because you're doing navigation, but you're also running the weapon systems while the pilot flies. So it's a team aircraft uh, splitting the duties. Um, you know, the in the KC-135, let me show you, I have an illustration here. KC-135 has a crew of four. So we represent here in the book, the aircraft commander, the co-pilot, the navigator, the boom operator.
0: Mm-hmm. And then this
1: is a crew chief who basically is responsible for all the systems on the plane. Okay. So the navigator uh, is responsible for the flying gas station arriving exactly over the air refueling control point, which is a specific latitude and longitude Mm -hmm. at exactly the right time with very synchronized watches between all of us on the crew and the bombers, fighters, Air Force One, the Thunderbirds, whoever we're going to refuel that day. We all hack our clocks to exactly the right time and we call in. So it's exact, you know, micro, micro minute, microsecond kind of timing. Um, and then the, the NAV's job is to do the math for coming opposite direction, or maybe we're just driving at the same time, to get the ground speed exactly right so that you are over the control point three miles in front of your receiver. So that's the math. Like if we're doing this and you're calling bank angles and turns, uh, but it's all about that micro, especially when you're in a war zone. Especially okay. when you're in a tactical area and you can't be making little navigational errors and be a couple miles off because <laughs> then you're in Iraq, right? Or Iran instead of Iraq. So that's what the navigator does. So it's base 60 math at 420 miles an hour to affect rendezvous um, in the case of 135. In different airplanes, they have different roles, but that was my role.
0: Okay. So that obviously takes a lot of math and focus. Um, Is that something that you were strong in or is it one of your strengths? Because obviously STEM is a big, big deal for, especially for women and and girls. So was that one of your strengths?
1: Yeah. um, I remember being in sixth grade and uh, Matt Wymera was a, very cute Japanese boy in my sixth grade class and he and I would race each other in those math tables, you know, like those math tables that you did. And then we were so cocky. Let's, we said, Hey, let's go race our teacher. So we'd go after school to go race our teacher in like, you know, the multiplication tables or something and just to see who could be faster. So, I mean, I, you know, it's like totally geeky thing to do, but that's, that was me in sixth grade. So, yeah, I was always with the math, always with the most advanced math. And that certainly made a big difference in being able to pass the very technical navigation. You know, basically it's ground school in the beginning is what nav school is, but then it quickly goes into all the systems and the radar Then you even do stuff like celestial navigation. Like you're a sailor on a ship, but you're using a sextant that sticks out on the top of the tanker and you're taking readings with the stars. So it's a very strategic air command, cold war skill, because you would have to operate and fly your airplane across the globe. And again, offload gas to the bombers in case of a cold war scenario, the KC-135 crews were trained to be able to navigate with nothing working on the ground and just using gyros and stars and almanacs, And so we did that, like seriously, like celestial navigation in an airplane, taking readings of stars while standing on a, (laughs) you step on a stool and you're like observing crazy, but it was all math. I loved it. I, I just, it was so cool. The, the different systems of math that people came up to be able to take airplanes across the world.
0: Wow. That is amazing. I mean, that that's one of your strengths. It's not mine, but I was like, okay, you've got to be good at math. (laughs)
1: The mental math, right? Like the quick math. I'm sure you have to do some mental math real quick sometimes, you know, just to figure stuff out where you're going, but that's what it is. It just gets much more tactical in a plane like that. And then I'll tell you where the additional pressure comes um, is that many times you deploy and you fly in a tactical environment, not just by yourself, but with a one, two, three, four, five, six ship. So you're the lead nav in a six ship or a 12 ship, you know, we've done 12 ships and the lead navigator, in the front of the of the whole entire group is setting the pace for everybody to arrive at they need to be. Okay. And you're, you know, uh, 500 feet up a mile in trail. And okay. so you're basically, you're, you're navigating and doing the timing for the entire package. So yeah, math. <laughs>
0: well, you know, that's interesting. I guess
1: take me through
0: the, um, I don't know if they're called missions or (laughs) tours, um, take me through that process because it's kind of interesting. I'm sure at the time there weren't many females and I'm sure it's getting better uh, with diversity, equity, inclusion, and more women are joining, but being in your role, like you obviously have to have a team that, you know, knows you trusts you. Um, but just walk me through that, that process. Did you ever feel like you had to fight a little harder or do you, were you accepted?
1: You know, I, I really was, and I'm going to share another photo with you real quick um, because this photo says everything, and uh, school kids always react to it. Um, okay. So let me bring it up real quick. Yep. This is my graduating class the day we all got our wings.
0: Okay.
1: And the class began with 32, mm. and I was the only woman. Yeah, I, see I believe. I believe here there's 23 graduates, 23 or 24, I forgot, um, because there is a 20 to 25% washout rate in UPT and UNT of people that don't make it because it is so grueling for 11 months. Uh, When you do get your wings and you get to this part, um, yeah, that's what it looked like. But what I like to show, I should like to show this at schools and say, so what do you notice, right? And it's so funny, like girls, you're the only girl. They'll immediately say it. The boys come up and they go, everyone's got really cool uniforms. <laughs> like, like the, like the boys don't see it that I'm there. Like it doesn't matter. Right. But the girls immediately go, Oh, you're the only one. It, it's hilarious to me, because that's what we see. And I tell them, yeah, you know, but the process to get selected, to go to pilot training and the process to get selected, to go to navigator training, like, to get, to be here. You've been chosen to be there by your academics, your physical fitness scores, your leadership. By the time you get here, you belong. And the gender is completely irrelevant to the airplane. The airplane doesn't care, right? Like when you're flying, does the airplane care if you're male or female? Wow. So the, the, challenge, the challenge, I believe, is for the woman or, you know, my friend, Sean Williams over here, the only African-American uh, student in the class the challenge on us as the only ones there are to not psych yourself out. Yeah. Okay. Because I don't know about Sean, but I was never bullied. I was never made to feel I didn't belong because they know what it takes to be selected to be there, but everybody else here knows. So even though I was Latina and a woman, it wasn't like anybody overtly made me feel like I don't belong. I yeah, believe yeah. the challenge lies within each one of us that can psych ourselves out and, suffer imposter syndrome, for example, okay. say, do I belong here? Yeah. But, but I didn't because the process to be selected really meant that people have already seen that I'm supposed to be there. Okay. Um, and, and that's, you know, that's not always a popular answer. People want me to say that, oh yes, it was so hard to, it wasn't. I mean, cause the military, the military wants you to challenge yourself, the military is gonna challenge you. I think the challenge is on us to not tell ourselves we don't belong or to not doubt that. And it's easier said than done, I understand, but I know that you know you don't get randomly selected to be a pilot navigator training. Other places I, I understand it can feel much more um overwhelming, right? Um, but I use this photo, Natalia, to tell girls that, you know, if you're the only one that wants to go do something, a robotics club or whatever, go do it. And boys welcome her because she's supposed to be there. So I hope I answered your question because that really was my experience. Um, no, I, I, didn't have those barriers again. I look at this picture and I'm like, I can't even believe I was there. Like all these years later, I still can't even believe any of this happened that I'm telling you, because I'm like, how'd that even happen? Um, It it happened because of that flight in Arizona with captain DeLisa, who said, tell them you want to fly. That's how it happened. Wow. It's just that simple. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And then I'll show you a couple more here. That's pretty cool. Um, So we went out to the uh, flight line afterwards. Um, We had the formal ceremony and got all the fancy pictures with our shiny wings. Mm -hmm. And then we had gotten all the name tags. You can see the the upper photo here. Mm -hmm. Um, We have no name tags because that was just one of the nights at the O club kind of thing. And then down below, this is the day we all got our wings. And so this was a really awesome day because, again, you know, here we are all together at the airplane where we trained and we all got our individual pictures on the plane there. Um, Mm -hmm. But it's very obvious, again, that I'm supremely outnumbered.
0: (laughs) But you definitely fit in. You look like you, I mean, you, you carry yourself very well and very confident with the arms (laughs) folded and everything you're rocking it.
1: Yeah, it was just, it was just the guys, it was the people we we're training with, it was your fellow lieutenants, it was everybody trying to get through the class and, you know, get through the check ride, right, and and survive to the next block of academics, and, uh, and yeah, and it helped that I was very confident, it helped that I was confident with the math, it helped that, hey, can you help me out with this homework, sure, come on over, and, um, you know, to, to be a tutor, and to help out, and we help each other out, and we do our chair flying, you know, NAVs do chair flying too, because you have to remember your processes and your checklist. So, um, yeah, it was just, it was just a bunch of people all training for the same goal. That, that's good. That's
0: amazing. Um, I wanted to ask about your family. Were they accepting of you going into, cause I know what at the are very protective of their family. <laughs> when you tell your, your parents, okay, I'm going into, you know, ROTC school, I'm going into the air force. Like, were they, you know, accepting or did they be like, okay, no, mehack. <laughs>
1: I love that question. Thank you. Okay. So I have this picture up to show you that ultimately, ultimately they were super supportive. They were always there. Um, I'm going to just talk to my, my father died a year ago. So I see these pictures now and they're like, so important to me that they were always there. Right. Okay. So I grew up in Colorado and when I asked my counselor, how I could go to school and I got that advice about the scholarship, um, I already had my eye on Berkeley, which is 1,100 miles away from my town in Colorado. The biggest employer in my town in Colorado was the meat packing plant, otherwise known as slaughterhouse. Okay, so it was very much an immigrant refugee community of low-skilled workers. My my puppy was actually assessed that he was a tailor working in the mall, working on people's clothes. So he had a more professional kind of job, right? But still, the prospects in that town were no, I was not going to bag groceries until I was 50. So I was going to get out and they didn't want me to leave because I was the oldest again, culturally, you don't even out of the house until you get married, all those things. And I was like, no, we're not in Mexico. You know, I'm an athlete, I'm a musician and I've got places to go and things to do. So they were kind of in shock about my ambition but my best friends in high school all had college educated parents. So I say that because I think it's so important that we look around for examples of people who are different than us versus that we always want to stay same, same, same. Right. And I'm not talking about assimilation. I'm talking about improvement. I'm talking about educational attainment. Right. And so my friends, parents all had college degrees. I was like, wow, you know, they go on vacation to Germany and Hawaii, mm-hmm. and we're still going in the carro to El Paso every day. <laughs> so I was like, I want to have more places to visit. I want to have money to travel. I want to travel. And I think that for me was the fundamental driver that I had this aspiration to see more of the world than just I-25 between Colorado and El Paso. That's, that was it. Well, so I think it comes from there. Right. And so it was always, uh, how we say in Spanish, the choque with my mom because she wanted me home after school to help out with the housework and the four younger siblings. And I'm like, I've got volleyball practice and I got a football game tonight. So that was me. And so I was early, probably ninth grade. I was already labeled as rebelde. <laughs> I was ticked. very much a rebelde. I was a rebel against what the programming was supposed to be. And it was very, I'm like, well, as long as you're going to label me, I'm going, I'm all in right. I'm going to rebel completely. Oh, <laughs> so, so yeah. It was, I think that was the hardest thing, honestly, like the obstacles were from within the culture, within the family. When I uh, applied to Berkeley and I applied to get the scholarship, um, I don't think my mom really hoped it would happen. My papi was like, well, you know, if you need to go do that and, you know, I, I'll support you. And my mom was like, oh, what's, ¿qué va decir los vecinos? What, what are the neighbors going to say if you move away? Right. I'm like, I don't care. Who, who are the neighbors, right? So when I got the letters accepted to Berkeley and the ROTC scholarship, I got them on the same day in February of my senior year. And I remember being at the mailbox, opening the mail. And I'm like, oh my God, I got into my first choice school and I got the scholarship. I remember my mom crying. Yeah. And it wasn't because she was happy. Right. She couldn't believe that I was actually finding a belief. And I remember the neighbors. ¿De veras vas a dejar a tu mamá? Yeah. So it wasn't just, you know, your, your question. I, I love this question, but it wasn't just my parents who were resisting the idea. It was the entire neighborhood. Like, you're really going to leave your mom, right? And so I think that's why I do this work now is like, I want more girls and boys because, you know, we're, we've got, do you know, we have our Latinas graduating three to one right now from college for every one Latino that graduates with a college degree. We have three Latinas because we're making the boys go to work. And the girls are like, peace out. I'm leaving. (laughs) So so more of the girls are figuring this out. Right. But so now I'm advocating that we stop turning our boys into revenue streams and let them also become the scholars that they're supposed to be. So there was a lot of resistance. But again, ultimately, they didn't stop me. They drove me to Berkeley. They came back when I graduated. They came back when I got my wings. Ultimately, they came to see that I was going to become my own person. Wow. And That's there they crazy. are the day of the getting of the wings and uh, coming out to the flight line to see the plane and stuff. So they were always there. They've always been there.
0: Oh, and it's also an internal struggle as well. I believe too, like being, you know, like, you know, you have that like guilt too. Like, should I be doing this? Like, should I stay home with my mom? And it's like you yourself had to overcome, I'm sure <laughs> some own personal obstacles as well. So it's just that strength. Um, which I think you already answered this, but what motivated you to pursue that direction or that career?
1: Um, just seeing that there was other ways to live. There's other ways to live besides how we were living. And I just, I think I was just really curious about the world. You know, when you're in school, you read history and you learn about Europe and you learn European history and you learn the names of capitals of other countries. And it's like this academic thing they have to teach you because you can to take a test for me, that was like, I wonder what those places are really like, right? And it was always, and, and I think also studying architecture, like I was really into architecture when I was uh, a kid in high school, I would read magazines, and I read about architecture around the world. And ultimately, that was my degree at Berkeley was, was architecture. But when you're studying architecture and architectural history, it's like you're reading about places that are outside the United States, because we're just a couple hundred years old. <laughs> it's not that interesting. So for me, I had this global view of, of things existing and people existing and buildings existing. And I wanted to go see them, but then I was really, you know, in my upbringing, you know, there's, it was like, I felt trapped in that. We didn't go anywhere Mm -hmm. other than the the vacation to Mexico and El Paso to see that familia all the time. So I felt kind of trapped by that. And then when I was meeting my friend's parents who would regularly travel, I was like, yeah, I got to find out how to do that. And the common thing was that they all had university degrees and professional careers. Okay. Um, I want to show you one more picture real quick. And, you know, because my, my parents are so fundamentally important to, to the story is the day that I graduated from college. That was nice, you know, cap and gown, we all do that. But the special, special day was getting the bars uh, the following December when I actually finished. I did the cap and gown commencement in May. And then six months later, I actually finished my last three classes. And then they came back again. (laughs) They came for the graduation six months later, they came back again. And they each pinned a second lieutenant bar on my shoulder the day I became an officer. And this day was very, very important to me because, you know, for immigrant parents to turn your little girl into a military officer, that was unforgettable for all of us. And I think this is still my favorite picture with my parents.
0: Yeah, you could tell they're so proud.
1: <laughs> yeah, I loved it. And it's, this is also atop the Campanile in Berkeley. Okay. Um, so I got some special permission to do the ceremony there because I was a tour guide. Mm-hmm. And you, everybody wants to get married up there. And they're like, no, can't close it for you to get married. Right. Uh, I'm like, it's going to be a 15 minute ceremony. I'm going to raise my right hand. You know, that uh, next to my mom and dad is the colonel and the captain and the people who are the ROTC staff. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we just did this quick ceremony. They put the flag there. I raised my hand, took the oath and then they pinned and then we took some pictures and then we left for the reception. But I love this photo. This yeah. is a really special photo.
0: Ch- change things a little bit into actually active duty. <laughs> yes. So um, you flew, I'm sure, over many different continents, various countries, um, different missions. Was there ever a moment when you first started? Like, take me back to that feeling of okay, you did it. You graduated. You're you're here. You're in a KC-135. You're you have this responsibility. Like, you know, was there ever a moment that you were just kind of outside of yourself and be like, holy cow, what am I doing? Or were you always?
1: <laughs> I think all the time. I was all the time like that. You know, I'm one of these people who really lives in the moment and kind of has a beginner's mind about things. And um, let me share another picture with you. So uh, one of the first places I got to go was England, and that was on the way to Saudi Arabia. And I went to England a lot. And that first crew was not this crew. This happened the second time around. But, you know, one of the things that was most amazing to me is whenever I showed up on the schedule, and there just happened to be three other women on the schedule. And this is one of those days because, you know, we had in the in the sack days before I got there, uh, they had what's called hard crew. So you always flew with the same people. Okay. And then you did alert duty and with the same people. That wasn't what I experienced by then. The, you know, the Cold War ended. And so now we're more mobility command. And so the schedule is more fluid. So showed up to fly. And there's Diane. And then Lila De Stephanie and Christy Kilmer, who ends up being one of the booms in the book, uh, the character, and then me. So we would just go fly these missions together. Um, and, and then, yeah, it was always like, they're paying us to do this. This is really like, this is like, we, we get paid to do this and to travel. And then we land and then we go, you know out to dinner and stuff. Like, really, we get to do this. And then, um, you know, I like to show that picture, but then really most of the crews were not like that. Most of the crews were more like this one. Okay. And this is in Turkey, which is this picture in Turkey. And, you know, the very first deployment that I, that I did, I actually ended up writing about it for a blog a couple of years ago, um, you know, to answer your question, like how I felt about it. Uh, and, uh, no, yeah, it wasn't this crew. It's a different crew, but that first crew I deployed with, oh my gosh. Um, I remember we flew to England and then it was like a nine hour flight after, you know, the mission briefing and the loading the plane and all that stuff. So you, you land and it's eight 30 in the morning, (laughs) You've already been awake for 12 hours. Um, and so then you have to try to stay awake because you don't want to, too off on your security rhythm. So they're all telling me, okay, now we have to stay awake. I'm like, are you kidding? You know, I'm a, I'm a second Lieutenant. I'm like, I don't know. And, but at the same time, I was just in awe that I'm running around the United Kingdom and I'm in the countryside where the bases, And we're going to these little pubs with these nice little beers. And it was like, wow. And I, I ended up writing a story. And the next day we flew to, to Riyadh, Saudi Arabia for uh, Southern watch, which is this whole combat scenario. But I remember the blog post that I wrote was the story about my first deployment mm-hmm. and how I called my parents from the air base in England to say, yeah, yeah, llegamos, oh. you know, and, um, and they knew I was going to Saudi Arabia and they knew that, you know, there was still, you know, combat and conflict, but yeah. I remember just, it's like an out of body experience right. It is because like. I really did do all that training. And and then after the first training with the wings, then you go do another four months of training to fly with a crew like this, to learn how to communicate with the uh, aircraft commander, co-pilot, navigator, boom operator, the checklist that you do, the steps to get ready for refueling, what you do during the refueling and after, and all that crew coordination, that's its its own thing. That's like four and a half months of training to learn how to fly with other people on this platform, right? and I would always just keep my parents updated and Mm -hmm. I'm just imagining what it was like for them to get the phone calls that I made right like oh yeah now I'm over here in the middle of California doing this crew thing and yes and I mean can you imagine (laughs) they're like what another airplane what so I can only imagine what it was like for them but I always kept them informed and um but it always felt like that. It always felt like, I can't believe I'm doing that. And then one day you're in Singapore and you're like, yeah, I don't know how that happened.
0: I can't imagine how surreal it is to travel across the world, to be exposed to different cultures. I truly believe that travel is the best way to find yourself and who you are and and just be exposed to different cultures, different people. So, I mean, I'd like to know, like, is there one memory or one place That connects or resounds with you the most um
1: throughout your you know career. Absolutely one place. That place is Suda Bay, uh on that Greek island of Crete.
0: I want to go to Greece.
1: (laughs) I know it's like Greece is really cool. I've been to Athens and other places, but Crete was special because Crete is this long skinny island, and you can drive from one side to the other side with not too much problem, but you'll go up the mountains and then down. So it's literally like going into, well, it's like you're crossing a mountain to get to the other side, which is a beach. So you leave the beach, you go over the mountain and there's a beach on the other side too. So it's really unusual territory. And then there was a a naval base and that's where we flew out of. And we were there as part of Operation Restore Hope, um, supporting the humanitarian airlift in and out of Somalia. Okay. And so what would happen is airplanes would leave Germany, you know, maxed out payload with all the equipment and people they're gonna take into Somalia. Mm -hmm. And then they would land and have just enough fuel to take off again, to come back up to the gas station that we had pretty much just in the Mediterranean. And then they would come right up with, you know, literally empty and then come and gas up and go back to Germany and then just repeat. (laughs) (laughs) but our experience as the the tanker crew we'd be like okay we're gonna go take off and we'd you know go fly an hour and then offload a whole bunch of gas and then come back and then we had a lot of time to just explore the island and what made it special was you know the ancient ruins remember my degree architecture Okay. So what's the, what's the connection between architecture degree and aviation? I'm like, well, there wasn't really supposed to be one. It was like, here's the academics and here's the the career, but the airplane took me to see the world's great architecture. That, wow. That's what it did. And I'll tell you a little flying story. Um, here's a patch that I, I love to show kids. Let me, let me bring it in. Okay. So it says operation restore hope. Yes. Um, and you see the goat, what's he wearing? Is he wearing oh is it head <laughs> like here? The ear. <laughs> no, it's not Dave Clark, but it might as well be, right? Yeah, I was gonna like, say the, the goat has a headset. <laughs> yeah, the headset, yeah. <laughs> Why does the goat have a headset? Um, I love telling the story, and there's actually um, I'm showing you the patch first, and I'll show you this right here. In in the Buenas Capitán Mama, okay. the first book, we actually have that same patch. See. Oh, wow. And I have it in there in the context that, um, you know, he says, I miss you when you go away. And then, you know, they're having a conversation. He says, when I come home from each trip, I have a new patch yeah one's from Stude Bay, Naval Bay and the Greek island of Crete. So when you ask me what a favorite place, I'm like, I, I the one I put in the book is my favorite for a reason. So, oh, yeah. so this patch, this is, um very rural island right it's, wow. there's a couple of big cities but not too big but the Suda Bay is uh, on a rocky cliff edge and all around people are farming and they have their livestock yeah. so it was not at all uncommon <laughs> to come into land and um, as you're approaching you're like oh no not again wow. and you just see the goats all over the runway and so when you're, you know, still a couple miles away, you hear the tower, you know, count two, four, go around goats on the runway that way. I mean, they just, you know, there's grass and they're letting them eat. Yeah. Okay. So then they bring the trucks out and they go beep, beep, beep. And they're honking their horns, trying to get the goats off the runway. So this patch became, um, a creative crew member who said, too bad, we can't just give headsets to the goats so that we can tell them and get the hell off the runway. <laughs> well, you can. <laughs> so, so it just became the silly patch, you know, like you just, you look over what's the iconic thing that we're going to design for our deployment patch. And this, this was it. So this is very special to me. And um, yeah, but that was crazy, but it was just, you know, all the time go around goats on the runway. Okay. Wow. <laughs> That's a visual. <laughs> Can see it right now. Well, but it wasn't like two goats. It was like you know, like eighty block or whatever they're called.
0: <laughs> well, now I have the visual of the book and the goats and the patch. So let's let's go on and talk about um, Buenas Noches, Capitan Mamá. Mm-hmm. Um, I read a little bit about how you know your son inspired the story. Mm-hmm. Um, tell us a little bit more about the you know, I guess the writing process, the story process. Like, what was your main goal when you wrote the book?
1: Well, I think the main goal came exactly from the moment of inspiration. And that was, wow. It was like right now, like this time of year, it was the night before Veterans Day. And I was putting on my flight suit and shining my boots because the preschool teacher had said, if anybody has, uh, you know, any military uniforms, if any of your dads were in the military, she said, you know, bring something, you know, talk about being a veteran um, to these three, and four-year-olds. And she didn't know I was a veteran because I wasn't running around saying I was a veteran. I mean, like I just didn't do that. Um, and so, but I thought, well, I'm going to go in my uniform because I think moms need to be seen too, right? And so I was putting the flight suit on the night before and just getting it ready. And my son came by with his pajamas. And I said to my husband, he grabbed the camera because he hasn't seen me in this before. And I'm just curious to see what he's going to say. And that conversation that happened that night, the first thing he did, he went right for the patches and he started pulling them off Mm -hmm. and he liked the sound they made and all of that. And then he said, I said, well, you know, it's time for you to go to bed and tomorrow I will go to your school. He says, and tomorrow I'll pull them off again. So he was all into the patches. And then I said, you know, good night. And he leaves the room and he turns and he says, I love you, Captain Mama. Because he'd asked me about the rank. Yeah. I was Captain when I got out. And so my flight suit has Captain. And when he said Captain Mama, I went, wait a minute. <laughs> it's just one of those moments, Natalia, where you just realized he just invented a character. Yeah. This Captain Mama, and he's learning what she does through the patches because as he pulled them off and you know i answered questions about it that became that became the story good night captain mama and it's a bedtime story where he's asking you know questions about what everything is here's one of my favorite illustrations right here they're cuddling and he pulled off the air mobility command and you know she's explaining that it's the team she's on And that they move people and fuel and stuff, you know, to America's friends all over the world. So it's like simple childlike language to explain the service of a mom and, you know, why she does it. So that's, that was the goal is just, you know, but I stayed up until like after that first um, night that he called me Captain Mama, instead of going to sleep and being ready for the morning, I stayed up until 430 in the morning because like my brain was on fire I wanted to know, do women veterans even write books for kids? Mm -hmm. I found one. (laughs) Do women veterans write books? Yeah, they write memoirs, right? Which is awesome. If they write, they write memoirs. But I found one children's book. And then the big question, has anybody ever written a book in English and Spanish about a mom flying a plane or wearing military uniforms? Mm -hmm. And that's where I got the big zero, nothing, you know? Because I have a lot of bilingual books in my house. It's some kind of an addict of bilingual books. but oh, um, you know, the girl's always in the kitchen making tamales or tortillas with her abuela or her mama because that's what's been published. Right. And I thought, no, it's time, it's time to show a different side of what Latinas do, what moms do, what women do. And that is the inspiration and that is the mission is to show the representation that, especially now during Veterans Day, you know like, remember the picture of my graduating class? Yeah. Okay. That's, that's who people think veterans are. And then like, if we don't make up noise and show up and go, yeah, and we're also veterans, you know, Latinas, moms and women are veterans too. That's the big message. And yeah, I wanted to talk about the aviation because the airplane is really cool. It's a crazy airplane. And then the second book actually takes place at the airplane. Okay. Captain Mama so the Surprise La de Capitán Mama. So now little Marco is in second grade and they take a field trip and his sisters come along too. And everything is on the plane. It starts out with the bus pulling up and they're all getting off the bus to go to the plane. Uh-huh. And then we meet the entire crew, and then each crew member talks about what they do in the plane. Uh, we talked about the emergency procedure with the handle just in case the landing gear doesn't come down. You know, and so we really take a tour of the plane. And my favorite part is we introduce a whole bunch of aviation technology or uh, aviation vocabulary. Mm-hmm. In English and Espanol. Okay. So you can learn to say landing gear. You can also say tren de aterrizaje, which I love to say. That is a, <laughs> a long-winded word. <laughs> I need to read it. So We have full glossary and glossario in the book so that kids can learn these actual airplane words. So.
0: Amazing. I, I love the fact that you're incorporating the bilingual aspect and just in general, the story itself, like not a lot of people like myself know, you know, what a KC-135 is or, you know, what exactly a navigator does. So I don't know if you incorporate those elements in the second book, I read the first one, yeah. but just the basics of, you know, what, what a person does what a someone in the, you know, air force does like, is. It's just a whole different world. And I have a friend of mine who's actually a boom operator. Um, I'm going to interview her.
1: <laughs> yeah. Okay. Do you know how to say boom operator in Espanol? No. I do not. <laughs> Most people don't, but it's in here. It is very long because, you know, in Spanish, you say the something of the something of the something. Yeah. So yeah. It is the operadora de la pértiga. Pértiga. Pertiga. <laughs> pertiga.
0: and then yeah, the boom,
1: you know, boom. <laughs> exactly boom the boom is the pertiga, and yeah. the boom pod is la cabina del operadora de la pertiga. oh my goodness but again oh. it's like places that people work there, these right. are careers that you never knew about and and right. how about avion tanquero Great, right. yeah and so you know i i learned some new spanish words by putting these books together because yeah. i can assure you my mom never said avion tanquero at home
0: Neither did mine, <laughs> but that, that's what's amazing and unique about you and your story is the fact that you're incorporating your culture, your experiences, and you're talking to an audience that, you know, not necessarily kids, right. They, they don't necessarily know. Just like with me, I, I wrote a book, a children's book for aerobatics and it's like, you know, it takes a skill set to get into their mindset. You're like, okay, what would what would a kid think? What you know, you got to speak their language. You got to kind of kitty it down.
1: Exactly.
0: Exactly. <laughs> oh my gosh, it's it's a whole writing process, which is yes. I want to move on to the whole writing process. And I know you have a publishing comp-
1: company as well, Place- Gracefully Global, is what it's called. Gracefully Global Group. That's the name of the publishing company.
0: Mm-hmm. And, and that's amazing. Um so this is after so let me take it back you you served um you got out of the air force when you were 30.
1: Am mm-hmm. I saying that. Um let me do the math, hold on. Uh t- 31 and a half. Yep. Okay. Mm-hmm. You served for um was it 10 years? 10 years active and four and a half years as a cadet while I was at Berkeley.
0: Mm-hmm. Um and then transitioning out of there you didn't stop there. You you served. You were basically a badass and you continued to be a badass. <laughs> I uh, created your own, um, company keynote speaker. So tell me a little bit uh, more about the transition from, I guess, military life to here you are I'm in a different world, a different yeah. environment.
1: Well, there's another world in between the airplane and the publisher author. There's another world that okay. led to the skills that make this life possible. So, uh, when I was actively flying, I decided, you know, because Okay, the scholarship was for four years, and my initial agreement to the Air Force is pay for four get four service. That's the scholarship. But then when the opportunity to fly comes along, the Air Force says, okay, well, we'll choose you to go fly, but if you accept, then you need to sign a new contract for more years because flying is much more expensive. So a pilot had to sign for nine years and a navigator for seven. Okay. More time, right? And why not? What's the difference between four and seven? I don't care, right? And, and I get to go fly. So of course I signed that contract. Uh, and then at the seven-year point, I started looking at, am I going to stay here or what am I doing? Right? Because like, that's a choice. And I knew the career track would take me out of the airplane and into staff duty at the headquarters in Illinois and into the Pentagon, blah, 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 blah. If I was going to be a colonel in an I'm like, no. That's not why I'm in the Air Force. I didn't have aspirations to be a colonel or general. I love the flying and the rest is just going to be staff work. If I'm going to be doing that, I might as well go to the private sector. Right. So I made a conscious choice to get out, but I did it after finishing my master's degree paid for not by the Air Force because that would cost me more time paid for by the American Association of University Women. I want to do a shout out to AAUW because a lot of women need to, like, they don't know that AAUW pays for career development grants, graduate studies, so much money for women's education, and so many women from our community don't know about it. So, AAUW paid for about 90% of my master's degree so that I could be positioned for the next chapter of my life. The obvious thing to do would have been to seek a job as a contracting officer or something and, you know, a military, avi- or a civilian and military aviation manufacturing, right? Like Boeing, that would have been the obvious thing to do, but I'm like, why don't want to do the same thing and just in a different place, right? Like if you're going to make a change, like do something really different, right? And some people stay in aviation, but I made a conscious choice to go into business and to go into global marketing. And that was my degree. It was an in international MBA. Let's call it that international MBA. Now, why did I do that? Well, remember how I grew up? I didn't go anywhere. (laughs) Now I've been everywhere. I've been to 27 countries. And so now I know that I want to keep working globally. That was like a number one thing for me is I have to find a job where in a career where I can keep traveling and working globally. So I was hired by a German company who would outsource marketing to Silicon Valley. So my master's degree made it possible for me to do a radical transition from the airplane to a global marketing management job for a technology company. And you're asking yourself, how the heck could you ever get interviewed for that? You have no experience, right? Um, basically what I was able to do is, you know, when someone's looking to see if they want to interview me and they're like, not sure, because I haven't been in the industry. Like, what do you think I've been learning for 10 years in the Air Force? Systems, technology, systems, technology. This internet protocol TCPIP, networking stuff for communications is just a bunch of systems. So I can learn these in three days, right? And that's a really important thing for people, even the military, to understand: is there is no such thing as a civilian navigator doing refueling, so there was never going to be an equivalent position out here in the civilian world. Mm-hmm. So the important thing was to take the things that you love to do, and find how can you do those in the civilian world. And what I love to do is write, present, be around cool technology, okay? And make that transition. The most important thing was that two women veterans helped me make the transition Mm. um, with their networks because I literally knew nothing about the business world. Like I'm 31 years old and I've never done a professional interview at a company. I had teenage jobs at the mall, (laughs) But, you know, I haven't had to really interview with resumes and dressing up. I haven't ever had to do that, right? So that was pretty crazy. So then I did that. I was hired as a global marketing manager for a German company, Siemens. And then Mm -hmm. what did I do there? I learned to do marketing end-to-end. Marketing messages, marketing plans, executing go-to marketing plans, like actually launching products, talking Mm -hmm. to the press, talking to the media, briefing executives, briefing analysts, Um, creating the collateral for, you know, how are you going to communicate about the product? Why it's special. So do you see how all of that was fundamental to then becoming a business owner? Yeah. And what I chose to do initially was continuing to do marketing for companies, the writing and the publishing and the copywriting and the messaging. But very quickly, I remembered that when I first started flying for the air force, I bought a book called writing for children. Mm-hmm. like way back when I had no kids and way back when I first started, I knew that this life. Was Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and, know, and you'd something. like to help support the podcast, <laughs> I didn't know please it share it with others or post about it on re- social hits. media. Isn't that weird? Yeah. that's pretty weird. <laughs> But so that's, that's what it was. It was um, the company I wanted to form it was a marketing company. And then later, um, I published a first book called Latinovating Green American Jobs and Latinos Creating Them, mm-hmm. and storytelling from our community to showcase positive contributions of Latinos in the USA. My publisher in San Francisco said to me, You know what needs to happen before we publish this book? And I said, What? She goes, I'm going to be your producer, and you're going to be the publisher. I'm going to teach you how to set up a publishing company wow. because this is your baby, and you're going to market this forever because this is your idea. And I know you have another book coming. So you need to know how to be a publisher. So again, the mentor in your life shows up. Mm -hmm. I just thought I'd hired her to publish this book, but she's teaching me how to become a publisher. God bless her. Katerina Rando. And so, yeah. So then just like that, she taught me how to set up a publishing company to add to gracefully global group that I'd created to do marketing. But it's always been that global focus, the name, you know, like the name it's also play on my name, you know, grace, but, um, It's about the global nature of the products, the markets that we serve, the people that we write about, and the examples that are for everybody in the world. Because I became a global citizen as I became an Air Force aviator. That makes sense. That's how I see it. Yeah.
0: And it's interesting the people that you that come into your life because my I myself and my I'm on my own personal journey of digital marketing and media,
1: so we're gonna have to talk offline. Yeah, yeah. It's
0: like it's not innovating.
1: Yeah. but No, it's it's no everything you're doing is innovating. It's you know you have some you have something you want to do right. You have a community you want to build. You have a community you want to showcase you have stories that you want amplified that's where it starts and then it's how you do it through a podcast right children's literature there's different ways to do it to take it out into the world yeah, um, yeah. i just happen to be a book person and yeah we have ebooks and i'll tell you what we did recently that was so cool is in our store at slash commerce i hired uh, do you listen to audiobooks yeah oh yeah okay. so i love audiobooks too much but i was thinking how do you do audiobooks for kids cuz they're so visual right like you would just hear the words but like the pictures are so important so i found this guy who produces uh, video picture books like audiobooks so you know we we hired him and basically he put together the visuals inside the book with sound effects So like in the first picture, when the kids are arriving on the bus next to the jet, you hear the sound of a plane flying overhead. (laughs) Yeah. And then while the refueling is happening, he inserted the sounds of the hiss that you'd hear of of an F-16 going by you, like the engines up, you know, like, so you'd hear some sound outside the plane. So he added sound effects. So it's literally a video audio book that we're able to create. So, yeah, so there's ways to innovate, but it's all coming back to why, why do you do it? Why do I do it? Right. I want these stories out there and people are going to consume media different ways. And, but the heart of it is the story of this woman who serves her country and has this little kid and, you know, bringing the the kids along for the ride.
0: Yeah. And I think it's amazing. And one thing that I, I heard in previous interviews while I was researching is the, the branding and marketing yourself. So you have to, you obviously have your own personal brand, you're marketing yourself and what better way to market yourself than talk about your life, which is something that some people connect to some people cannot, but if you don't get the story out there, no one's going to know. So I think that's amazing, you know, the well, fact- and,
1: you know, and thank you for saying that because branding, you know, branding is very specific. Like you just said, you're not going to appeal to everybody. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And you have to know that when you're going out there with your story, because if you're trying to be generic and appeal to everybody, you'll appeal to nobody. Right. Right. Yeah. And so that goes back to the advice I got when I was getting out of the military. When the women that were mentoring me were like, you've got to stop. They're like reeling me back in. I'm like, oh, I can do this. I can do this. And they're like, you can do anything, but you don't know anything about what exists out here. So you got to stop. You got to stop and self-assess and say, what do you care about? Right? I know you can do spreadsheets. Do you love to do spreadsheets? No. So if you just do a skills assessment of what you can do, then you're missing the self-assessment of what makes you happy to do what what do you love to do, right, what are those functional things that you just can't wait to get up and do every morning. Like, what is that, right? And if you know that, then you can find where you can do those things. And then once you know that, then you can now have an aspiration and now you can communicate the aspiration through your branding and start to attract those people and intrigue those people so that you'll hear the magic words. Ooh, do you have a resume? Yeah, My sister's hiring, she'd love to meet you. But if you don't know your aspiration, and you don't know how to articulate it so that people are interested and intrigued mm-hmm. that a whole lot of nothing happens. And so I decided that I wanted to take that marketing skill set mm-hmm. and create a process for transitioning military people coming out and veterans in subsequent career transitions, because there's always one okay. to teach the process that I invented for us to be able to become epic storytellers of our own value. So it's just basically the intersectionality of everything that I do. it's the it's the veteran, it's the okay. aviator, the process person. you know we're we're checklist people, right? Yes, so, yes. like the checklist is so important to me. Why? Because the checklist preserves your brain for the stuff that matters. <laughs> like oh. don't make me think about the, you know the 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 stuff that's automated, right? Just give me the checklist. So I don't forget anything. But then okay. let me have my brain for creating intriguing messaging to help this veteran who needs to go intrigue somebody so that she can get hired by the state of Washington to work in the employment development department that she wants to be in as a social worker to help women like her who are domestic violence survivors get back into the workforce. This is an actual example. Okay. Or or the Marine who's studying at Portland State who's like, people keep seeing me like a Marine. I'm like, well, have you seen your LinkedIn lately? Your LinkedIn just talks about how you're a Marine. That's why. (laughs) Well, I mean, yeah, (laughs) if you want to be seen as a software engineer, then you need to say that that's what you're doing, but I'm not a software engineer. I'm a student. Okay. You're an aspiring software engineer.
0: Yeah.
1: Aspiring software engineer with the discipline of a Marine. Right. Okay. And then more story underneath. So that's what I do. And it is so important so that our veterans can articulate that value that I know they have. I, I see every veteran as a rock star.
0: Yeah, absolutely. But,
1: but they don't know how to tell you because, you know, in, in the military, we hear there's no I in team.
0: Yeah.
1: In the military, you're not you, you're part of a squad, a team, a crew. Right. So you have no individual identity that's stripped the day you get there and they shave your head and they give you a uniform. Yeah. Same, same, same. Exactly. And then suddenly magically you're supposed to come out of the military and okay. job interviews. What? Right. And so that's, that's the gap. And I know that gap too well, cause I, I went through it, but I went through it with a lot of help. And so that's the, the work you're talking about. It's the brand before your resume book. And then the authentic personal branding course and the workshops that go with it, because there's just some really big gaps in the, in the, in the, not in just the skills, because the military doesn't give you those skills when you leave. Right. They give you zero of those skills. They give you what's called transition assistance program, Mm -hmm. (laughs) but it's not a professional development skills program. So it's, um. It's one of the things I want all civilians to know. If you know a veteran or if you know someone in the service that's getting out, understand how woefully unprepared they're going to be to get out because they get like one day of training, wow. maybe two as okay. they walk out the door. Wow. It's not. And you know, when you come back in, you get what a year it was 11 months for me to go through UNT and then four and a half months to learn how to do my job on the way out. It's like, here's some stuff that Congress says we have to teach you. Bye.
0: Wow. You're on your own. Fly. <laughs>
1: Exactly. And so that's why the network is so important. And so I describe myself as a bilingual storyteller, Mm -hmm. you know, the children's books, a bilingual storyteller, helping my fellow veterans become epic storytellers of their own value. So I am the storyteller and then I create storytellers because I don't want my fellow veterans to be despondent and despairing because they can't get job interviews because then they think there's something wrong with them versus the monster gap of skills. And it's about the branding and the aspiration, um, to be able to articulate. So that's why I do both. Some people are like, that's so weird that you do both things. Like, why is it weird? I'm just bringing my whole entire authentic identity and experience that I am to serve the communities that I love. I mean, I don't think it's weird. Is it weird?
0: No, it's not weird. It's something that I can relate to too. And I'm not a veteran. Um, you know, it's that branding. I just started doing it just recently, and things are like coming my way. And I'm like, you know what? I'm just going to be myself. I'm just going to market myself and what I'm capable of, all the talents that I have, and so many ideas. And I'm just, I just have to like focus because I'm like,
1: <laughs> that's the hard thing, right? Because then you start creating and like more yeah. things come, and then other people make suggestions.
0: I have a creative brain. I'm just like, yeah. that's an
1: idea. That's a good idea.
0: Yeah just honing in on your talents and skills. And it's, it's a, you know, self-development, self-confidence. These are things that, you know, I think women in general, not all women, but I think certain Latino women, I think we could be better at that. We could do better at that. Um, Just because it's the culture, it's how we raise, we're raised to be, you know, submissive and and all that stuff. But for me personally, it it wasn't. um,
1: Yeah.
0: I was like, I'm just going to do it. And I don't care. So that's, that's where my podcast came into play. I'm like, you know what? I don't fit in this community, but
1: I'm going to be so loud that you can't ignore me. Right. No, I I love that you did that. And, you know, how about if I ask you a question, can you tell me like how you discovered aviation or like, you know, who first took you to an airport or, you know, where did that bug moment happen for you? I'm really curious to know. (laughs)
0: So, um, my mother actually works for, um, an airline, but more so she's ground. She does a ticketing agent, but I grew up just traveling. Like my mom was kind of the spur of the moment type of person. Like she'd be yeah. like, okay, oh, hey. I have my brother, my older brother. And, you know, in the middle of the night, she would hear some ruckus in the kitchen and my parents are talking and she's like, okay, kids get up, pack. We're going to Hawaii or we're going to Italy. <laughs> oh, <geez. laughs>
1: like mom. <laughs> wow. Don't we have school tomorrow?
0: <laughs> you know? I mean, my mom and bless her. She's still with me, but, um, she's just very, very spontaneous. Doesn't plan a thing, which can be. I love really it. Bad. Yeah. Yeah. Chaos. You know, it's chaos. And we live, um, we live by O'Hare airport in Chicago. Yeah. We're under one of the major runways. So growing up literally and still to this day, you can stand wow on the street and then look up and you can see the end number of the aircraft.
1: So, I love it. I love it. So yeah. And it's just, so something- you were around airplanes, you were exposed yeah. to them in one way or another. I think that's super cool. That is super yeah. cool.
0: So it, it was initial recently with the whole air shows and my husband is a, you know, air show pilot, yeah. but that's when I was like, okay, I've been in aviation. I, you know, I'm, I was, I worked in airport operations. I worked out on the airfield. I now I work for a major airline. So And in the air shows, I'm like, I want to talk about my journey. I want to share stories of strong, powerful women um, and share it with the world. Like, it's not just being a pilot of flight attendant, you know, there's so many different aspects of aviation. I'm interviewing
1: uh,
0: next week. So it's
1: like, awesome. (laughs) So, yeah, and that's the thing. It's like, it's such a big word that means so many things. And there's always going to be some careers that get more of the limelight than others. But I just think that the possibilities, you know, of all the different places you could go and then, you know, then the fact that you get to travel. So, you know, as a ticketing agent, you could just spontaneously go to Hawaii with your kids. Well, more people need to know that because then that would be a way that they could work for an airline and get to travel without having to be a pilot, which is what they're thinking they have to do. Right. There's just so many different careers. And I think it's great that you have that big picture view. And I certainly appreciate that you're including the military aviation part, because I don't know how many more women you want to interview with military aviation. But if you want to talk to helicopter pilots and people, you know, women who've done that, I can set you up because we literally we do everything now.
0: Yeah, and I'd I'd like to learn more about their stories because it not only helps me grow, but it helps other people that are listening. Like, okay, I didn't know that. Like recently one of my friends, um, her daughter went into um the military and she wants to fly like Black Hawk <laughs> helicopters. I'm like, oh my gosh, like, yeah, she's Latina. She's yeah. So, you know, there's so much um out there that I think we we need to tell the world about. So- yeah,
1: there's a Latina helicopter pilot. I want to say it's Blackhawks, but it might be Apaches. I remember her, her first name is Marisol. I'm just thinking about her name. I don't know her last name. I, something with the C. Marisol, Chala, something like that. Marisol, last name C, but Latina helicopter pilot might be Blackhawks, but it might be Apaches. So ah. yeah, we're out there. And then my friend Olivia Chavez uh, flew Chinook helicopters. Okay, um, But she did that after eight years of being enlisted, uh, corps in the Marine Corps. Yeah. So she first went in the Marines after high school for eight years and then got out, went to college, became an officer, an army officer, changed services, and then went to flight school. Wow. So incredible stories. Yeah. It, like how well, did that happen? Yeah, Mentors.
0: It's just endless. Like you could talk all like forever about women in aviation and that's yeah. what I love about yeah. it. Like, yeah. And we need to hear more about that. That's before I let you go. I well, we've been talking a while. I could talk to you forever, but I want to briefly talk about that. Um, you know, you mentioned earlier the women Air Force Service Pilots, um, mm-hmm. uh, mm-hmm. women auxiliary service pilot, the WASP. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to kind of bridge that with your um, there was a medal, I believe, that you received. Oh, yes. And and you talked a lot, a lot about, you know, how. There was a gap in, I think, in 1977, women being accepted. Can you tell, before we end the discussion, tell me about the, um, your story about the medal that you received, but didn't receive. (laughs) Tell me a little bit more. Didn't receive
1: it, then did receive it. (laughs) Okay. So this this is crazy. Okay. So I don't know if you've heard the name Olga Custodio yet, but she was the first Latina to ever go to uh, Air Force pilot training. And I want to say she went like the year after it opened up. She was like, she wanted to go and she went first. So, um, and I want to just name her because I was in the Air Force for almost a decade and I'd never heard of her. And so I wanted to say that what you're doing to, to bring stories to the world Mm -hmm. is so important because, you know, it's women who want to tell the stories of women. Um, you know, why doesn't every student know about the women air service pilots of world war II? because like the guys have been writing the textbooks kind of decided to keep them out and that's not okay. So when I heard about Olga, I was so amazed. I'm like, you mean I was in the air force for 10 years and I had no idea this woman existed. And so in meeting her and hearing her say she was the first Athena to go to pilot training, first Athena to learn to, ride, to fly fighters because that was what the T38 is, it's the F5. So I was like, wow, you know, it's total pioneer, right? And then someone said to me during a media interview with uh, Winiti Sean last it was during the um, the pandemic, the guy I was talking to in, in Miami from Univision, show and he says, so I'm going to say that you're the first Latina that ever uh, received an air medal for air combat operations. Cause he's reading my bio. I'm like, no, I don't, I didn't say I was the first because I don't know that, you know? Really? So no, I'm just saying that that happened. I went over there and, and I received an air medal, but he goes, well, I, I shouldn't say that. I'm like, no, don't say that because, <laughs> you know, so, but then after that interview, Natalia, I was like, wait a minute, let me tell you the story. And then I will tell you that I did confirm, in fact, that I am the first Latina that has received an air medal for air combat operations uh, and the first Latina aviator in the Air Force. OK, so I'm, I don't know about the Navy or anybody else. I'm talking about the Air Force. Um, so here's what happened. Um, I went over. I got my training, got my wings, did my training with the crew, got to my first base. Mm-hmm. More, more training, chem gear, you know, cause you know, you never know if someone's going to throw chemicals at you guys are <laughs> deployed. So all the crazy stuff you have to do to deploy lots of vaccines, you know, to get ready to go malaria, the whole thing. Oh. Finally, I'm ready to deploy. And I told you that I went through uh, the UK and then straight to Riyadh, Saudi Arabia. The operation was operation Southern watch. And it was right after the Gulf war, When Saddam Hussein was using his aircraft to basically kill his own people. So we set up no fly zones over northern Iraq and southern Iraq. And we set up our combat air patrol and our gas stations and our fighters would come up. And any time a MiG took off, they would chase it away. The MiG would take off and come after the tanker. So we were the target. Okay. So we've got Russian MiGs coming at us. And then we have to retrograde and get out of there. So these are all 01 sorties, which is combat sorties, because the enemy was engaging. <laughs> this is my first deployment. I'm there as a first lieutenant going, wow, it's kind of exciting. Yeah. Wow. Right? Like this is my first time I've ever been anywhere. And it's like it's wow. like a, I mean, like when I tell you it's out of body experience, it really was. So we were one of we we're the third crew in out of four that arrived. So we're flying one, two, three sorties a day. We would take off full of gas, go up to the racetrack where we're refueling. The combat air patrol would come up, they'd get their gas, we'd stay there until bingo fuel and go back, Mm -hmm. get some food, fill up with gas, take off again. And there was four crews. It was insane. So very quickly we hit the threshold of, I want to say 25 or 30 sorties. For the air medal, where the colonel could recommend the crew for meritorious service during combat air operations. So, of the four crews, you know, four crews, four people in the plane, so mm-hmm. 16 people, I was the only woman that was over there. Mm-hmm. Never dawned on me that that even mattered until he put the packages in for the air medal. Mm-hmm. And three packages came back with four air medals each. And our package came back saying this crew cannot receive an air medal because there's a female on the crew. Hmm. This is after we'd flown 37 sorties and we're still flying every day, but they're getting their air medals. My crew of three dudes and me is getting a letter saying that they can't have an air medal because I'm on the crew. So the whole crew isn't getting an air medal. It's not like they're getting it. I'm not like the whole crew. And why is that? Well, because I think the Pentagon didn't want to admit that women were needed in these operations. So I like, wow, what am I supposed to think? You guys train me. You sent me over here. Doing the job. <laughs> Do I go fly today or do I just like, I'm not supposed to be here. Right. Right. So of course we kept flying and like, whatever. So the Colonel says, I'm going to appeal. This This is ridiculous. So he sent the package back and um, I think it was like another six months. And we had already gone back to our base in Washington state when suddenly and quietly one day the air medals arrived at the commander's office with the letter that here's your air medal. So they gave it to us, but without the pomp and circumstance and the newspapers that were surrounding them over there. So yeah, I got my air medal on my very first deployment. And um I really didn't understand that it was a big deal. Like I, I understand now, like in the pecking order of medals, how how prestigious that is. Like the only way you get a higher flying medal is if I guess you crash behind enemy lines, right? You get like the distinguished flying cross or something, yeah. but it's it's a pretty big deal. And so all these years went by, and then that interview I was telling you about with the guy in Miami who wanted to say I was the first Latina, I said please don't say that. Um, but I was curious, so I went ahead and asked the Air Force Personnel Center, the official record keepers, yeah. um, to tell me, you know, who were the first? I think I said who were the first three women that Latinas that went to uh, Unt. Right. And I only asked because I'd met Olga. Right. And it came back that I was the third woman, a third Latina ever to go through UNT. So, again, early days. And then the second question I asked was, OK, if there was only three of us and there had been one pilot who was Olga mm-hmm. and she wasn't deploying, she was at a pilot training base training other pilots then really how many of us have there been that ever got air medals because we deployed into hostile territory? So that was the question I asked, you know, who are the Latinas that have received air medals for air combat? And he says, we can confirm that the first Latina to receive an air medal for air combat operations is Lieutenant Gachetis Cadeño Soto. I'm like, Oh, I didn't know, but (laughs) why would I even ask? Right? Like when you're doing the work, you're doing the work. It's only later when someone says, I'm going to say that you were, then you go, you better not. And then you go find out that, wow, I actually was. Wow. And, and I find that so bizarre because it never enters your mind. Just like Olga says, I didn't know I was the first pilot that was a Latina. I was just so happy to be in pilot training, right? It's yeah. not a thing that you know, because the Air Force certainly is not making a big deal out of it. It's just a person in training, right? Yeah, yeah. It's only later when you look back that you realize that it was special.
0: That is very special and it's an accomplishment. I mean, I I can't imagine everything that you went through um, during your service and, and now even you're still just inspiring others. That that's an amazing journey and story.
1: Well, I, you know, I recognize that it has been an extraordinary life of unusual experiences. <laughs> I mean, just even saying it makes me laugh. Like, I don't know. Like um, I was at a school on Friday in El Paso, in the middle school. And I had, I think, 15 students at the, the, the woman, the counselor was like, can you just talk to my students for a few minutes? She just put us all in a conference room for 15 minutes. Like the student leadership of the school, sixth and seventh graders. And I kind of gave them a little rundown. I didn't know I was going to do this. I had no visuals. I had nothing. It was just like me. And I went to talk to her and she puts me in this room with these kids. And this, this young girl, Latina, she says, she raises her hand. She goes, I just want to know when you were my age, did you have any idea that you were going to grow up to be a military aviator, a marketing professional, a publisher and an author and a speaker? Did you know you're going to do any of those things? And I said, Nope, I knew none of it. And then I saw her go like this. I saw her go, whew, good. Like, because I don't have any idea what I want to do, is what she was saying. And yet all these things are possible. That's what I told her, I said, you don't have to know a specific thing you want to do. I mean, I know adults keep asking you what you want to be when you grow up, which is a silly question because I haven't grown up yet. Um, but, you know, it's not about that. I said, the most important thing for you to do is stay curious, keep learning, and put yourself in a university environment where things can come your way. That's what you need to be doing and thinking about first, because the rest of life will be revealed to you as you move through life and meet new people, like your husband at aerobatics, right? Like you just meet people, like like the pilot who picked me up for a T thirty seven ride, who said, "Yeah, this is a thing you can do." I'm like, "Oh, okay, cool," right? Uh, you just, life keeps unfolding. So you do not have to know what you want to do, or even have an idea. You just have to be curious and pick your first academic curiosity and put yourself in a university environment and then go to some guest lectures, do some summer programs, do a semester abroad, just kind of let life come at you because that's how I've lived. None of this was planned. Right. Yeah. right. It just wasn't. And that gives teenagers, you see the relief because they're all stressed out about like, who they're going to be, what they're going to do. I'm like, I don't know, man. I didn't know <laughs> if I talked to 15 year old me and you told her what her life was going to become. She would laugh at you. Like, are you kidding? That sounds like a crazy life. You know, yep. like, why know. are you doing so many careers? What's up with that? You know, I'm like, I don't know. Cause life is interesting. 15 year old me would have just like What are you even talking about? Right. I would not have believed it, which is, I think that's really important. Just let kids, let kids be kids, let kids stay curious, tell our stories of our different careers and the different ways that we fell into them and the different ways we decided to pursue them and then let them go discover who they're going to become. I've got three teenagers. So I'm saying this as a mom you know, cause that's how I've raised my kids. I don't know who they're going to be. I know they're curious. They're going to keep learning stuff and right. we're all going to be surprised to see who they become. Cause I don't need to know right now who my 17 year old is going to be. Right. They're still
0: evolving and growing and learning. He's which... going to be
1: somebody incredible. I can't yeah. wait to find out what that is.
0: Absolutely.
1: So, you just yeah, answered that's... the
0: question I was going to ask, <laughs> which was the advice, which, I mean, it's beautiful. It's just, it's It's a journey, you know what? Just go along for the ride. I'm still on my journey. I didn't think I would have a podcast here. <laughs>
1: right, you know, no, and that's and then people that you meet in your podcast are going to make you curious about something else. Oh, yeah. And you're <laughs> gonna end up partnering with somebody you meet in a podcast to do something. Yeah. I mean, that's just the way that it goes, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and And I think that's what's so cool about having these creative ideas and this creative spirit that you do is that you stay open to the possibilities of what's coming next versus that you rigidly have chosen a thing you're doing and you block out everything else right um i think that's that's what keeps life interesting and like there's days and i wake up and i'm like oh look they want an author visit in south carolina didn't see that coming right it's magical. I love it. That's great. Well, before I let you go, thank you for talking.
0: Um, how can someone find your book, find out more about you, get involved if there's any type of involvement um, with you know any type of services you provide? Where can they find you?
1: So the easiest way is captainmama.com. That's the easiest way. And um, there you'll see a little video of my little boy that I described earlier. And I will show you one more visual. Do you see the three books right here? So captainmama.com is in the lower left. You see the two titles that I showed you earlier and the companion patches. And on the right side, you see a sneak peek of the next book which I will show you now right here. So this one, uh, we're going to be announcing that pre-order sales have just started, and you can find it by just searching, taking flight with Captain Mama, Despegando con Capitan Mama. Did you know how to say Despegando, taking off? I, your... <laughs> I <laughs> didn't know that one. <laughs> despegando, I was like, you're unsticking. So, yeah. yeah, that's what it is. You're unsticking.
0: I think um, I heard you are taking off my mom.
1: Yeah, there you go. There you go. See, you're way ahead of me, man. I'm telling you, I do no airplane lingo at all in Spanish. And so, this is the beautiful art that uh, Linda Lenz, our illustrator, whose father served in the Air Force, she is like the most perfect illustrator. You can see her amazing work. This is all hand drawn, every switch, everything overhead is just gorgeous. And Captain Castro's on the left, right there. And Lieutenant Tanami's on the right, the co pilot and the aircraft commander. And then, little Marco's going to get the jump seat for the takeoff, which yeah. is really important since now kids can't be in the, um, you know, the, airplane flight decks anymore, like, you know, back in the day when they could go and watch the pilots during the flight. So I think it's important to bring kids along for the ride. So yeah. And, um, all the books are available at uh, gracefullyglobal.com commerce. That's the actual store. It has all the books, all the patches, all the teacher packs, and then the brand before your resume book that's for the transitioning military people. So everything's there at gracefullyglobal.com commerce.
0: Yeah. Awesome. Thank you for sharing that. And thank you for joining us on the Wonder Woman of Aviation. You, we've spoken with Graciel, Graciela. It's like a
1: tongue twister. <laughs> it is. Oh, <laughs> yeah. So you go Spanish, Spanish, and you switch over to Japanese real fast with the Sato. So it's a little bit different. Yeah.
0: <laughs> All right. And for those of you listening, uh, we will see you next time. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to help support the podcast, please share it with others or post about it on social media.